And then can you describe that day at that appointment when you uh, left Wes and went back for the appointment? Yeah. The day that I was detained? Yeah. Can you describe that appointment? In West, I had a conversation with them. They told him that, no, she's case is not a priority. That is not a priority. You have to just, you know, get the file ready and, uh, you know, it's going to work, you know. They made you think that maybe uh, it was going to be all right? <laughs> sitting in the conference room and I remember when Jill called the sadness and anger and fear that was in his voice the distress um, when he said pastor pastor they trapped me I'm Stephen Stacks and this is Inhospitable just heard was the sound of Citywell Church in Durham, North Carolina, as they surrounded one of Immigration and Customs Enforcement's, or ICE's, deportation vehicles outside the U.S. Customs and Immigration Services Office in Morrisville, North Carolina. Samuel Oliver Bruno, one of their church members, was inside the van about to be deported. Oliver Bruno had lived inside Citywell Church for almost a year, hoping to avoid the fate that came to him that day. He found himself trapped between two unenviable ends when United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, or USCIS, called him out of sanctuary for what they called a biometrics appointment. Go, and they might trap you. Stay, and they'll definitely order you deported. USCIS claimed that they needed to take some physiological information from Oliver Bruno in order to process his request to stay in the United States. Instead, they ambushed him. Plainclothes officers posing as immigrants tackled Oliver Bruno as his church watched from outside the immigration office. They forced him into a van which his church surrounded until 27 of them were arrested by the Morrisville Police Department, and Oliver Bruno was deported a week later. Oliver Bruno was not the first person trapped by ICE, and he will not be the last. Inhospitable tells the story of one such person. Hi, Jill. Yeah? Can you hear me? 
Okay, good to, good to talk to you, brother. This is Steven. Yes. How are you this afternoon? Oh, I'm just good, you know. Not too bad. I'm, uh, I'm okay. Jill Bikindu came to the United States in the early 2000s during the George W. Bush administration from the Republic of Congo, or Congo-Brazzaville. Shortly after he arrived, he found his way to Greenwood Forest Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. Gilles um, moved to Cary, and I think we initially became acquainted with him. He just basically turned up at our church uh, on a Sunday. Rick Hoyle is a member of Greenwood Forest and has served as a deacon, which is a prominent church leadership role. He had walked to church, and uh, the pastor at the time asked if someone might give him a ride, and it was someone in our Sunday school class. Uh, And um, at that point, We got to know him, and eventually he decided to uh, become a member of our class and was a very faithful attender for many years. That was around, if I'm recalling correctly, maybe 2005, possibly 2006. Uh, And it was a very interesting, you know, he he wasn't typical of people in the class at that time, which tended to be sort of middle-aged couples, but he sort of adopted us and we adopted him and he became a very uh, central member of the class. We'll go into more detail next episode about how and why Gilles found himself in the United States. After he arrived, Gilles lived here for many years without significant incident. Under the Obama administration, Gilles maintained what is called an order of supervision. An order of supervision is applicable to a person who's already been ordered, deported from the United States. This is Hans Christian Linartz, an immigration attorney in Raleigh, North Carolina, who also worked on Jill's case. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement has the discretion to put such a person into custody and hold that person until it's uh, time for deportation. But in what is often an exercise of some uh, level of mercy, They can also defer, uh, either officially or unofficially, the deportation of that individual, or they may need to defer it because they can't get the home country's permission to take the person back immediately, or there may be other issues. But when they do that, they have the option of putting the person under an order of supervision, which is simply an order that says, come in periodically to the ICE office, show yourself so that we are satisfied you're not trying to run and hide. Uh, And when a person gets an order of supervision, it can be very beneficial because with an order of supervision under the regulations, that person can also apply with a showing of financial need for work authorization. And so that can be a good position to be in if you're already in the unfortunate position of having an order of deportation. Under his order of supervision, Gilles held jobs in the United States and had a driver's license and social security number. He worked blue-collar jobs like clerking at a gas station convenience store and eventually in a manufacturing warehouse outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. Gilles was a diligent worker, paid his taxes, and even became a generous contributor to his church. I would describe Gilles as quiet, um, humble, uh, witty, very funny in a, in a quiet, understated kind of way. Lauren Eford, senior pastor of Greenwood Forest. 
Um, I would describe him as dedicated, uh, consistent, loyal. Um, I most remember that Joel was here every single Sunday, and he was always in his Sunday school class uh, with his friends, um, and that he was always um, in worship. Um, I knew that if he wasn't here, uh, that he was sick, um, or he had worked uh, a night shift and wasn't able to come. Um, he often wore a little white hat um, all the time, so I always associated Jill with a little white hat. Um, but in the worship service, too, I always found it remarkable because Jill was always very intently uh, listening to everything that was happening. Um, he heard every word that I said. He would often be scooting to the edge of his pew during the service, and I just remember his um, engagement in the worship service. Yeah, I guess when I think of Gilles, I think of maybe the idea of still water runs deep. Mm. Rick Hoyle. You know, he doesn't, uh, he's not one to say a lot, but when he does, I always remember early on in particular just being surprised at the depth. And probably my own expectations were not fair and accurate about what he might be like and what he might bring to the table, but it turned out he was... Uh, guy with a lot of spiritual depth, a lot of wisdom, uh, uh, very well educated, very, very smart, uh, you know, and I think he early on, you know, because of the language, you know, he speaks good, spoke good English, but had come from a place where French was his principal language, but as he got more comfortable, I mean, occasionally he would pray in class, and early on he would actually pray in French. Mm which was actually kind of, we all kind of enjoyed it, you know, yeah. despite the fact that many in the room couldn't understand him, you, you in a sense, could sort of join him in spirit. And uh, uh, so I think probably the thing I remember about him most in class is just whenever he read scripture, just something about that voice and it made you think about where he had come from and, uh, you know, how central scripture had been to him through all that. And it was, it was really... For me, anyway, it was a real blessing just to have him read scripture. Gilles hmm. lived in a small apartment in Raleigh with multiple roommates who were also immigrants. He had a small room to himself, which was filled with bits of technology, textbooks, and items he'd purchased over the years from the church Christmas bazaar. I ended up spending a lot of time with Gilles on rides back and forth to Charlotte. Um, I think maybe, maybe like... Six rides in total. Wesley Spears Newsom is an associate pastor at Greenwood Forest who accompanied Jill to his appointments with ICE. One of the things that I remember most was there was on one of the rides, there was something happening globally, I think, in Iran, maybe. And Jill wanted to know more about it. So we listened to a podcast about Iran together. <laughs> on the way to Charlotte. Um, and that was representative so much of, of how Jill approached the world. Like many, many citizens in the world who don't live in the United States, um, he was much more aware of things that were happening around the globe than most Americans are. Um, he was also consistently, is also consistently dedicated to self-improvement and learning more and discovering more when uh when he left his car in our parking lot the last day that he and i went to charlotte 
if you were to go look in the back seat of the car, you'd find a bunch of textbooks. Um, like macroeconomics was in the back of his car. And he'd taken classes at Wake Tech Community College before. He was always trying to, to learn more and kind of embodied that spirit, you know, that America says it values um, of self-improvement and bootstraps and all that. If there was anybody who actually did that, it's Jill Bikindu. Jill lived a life similar to most Americans. He had a job, a place to live, and did what he needed to do to make ends meet. Like many Americans, Jill struggled with his health care. Over the years, he developed multiple chronic health conditions from kidney problems to diabetes to an HIV diagnosis. Despite challenges, Jill continued to make his way in his new country and lived this way for over 10 years. Orders of supervision were a common way for immigrants to continue to live in limbo in the United States. For many immigrants, there is no path to citizenship they can follow. You cannot simply apply to be a United States citizen, but it's also very dangerous to exist without documentation in this country. Where many immigrants are forced into the shadows because of a lack of comprehensive immigration reform for decades, Jill Bikindu tried to live in the light of day. With his order of supervision functioning as his documentation, Gilles existed somewhere between status as an unauthorized immigrant and a permanent resident. He had temporary status, but it was just that, temporary. Like thousands upon thousands of other immigrants in the United States, his status was so temporary that it could be taken away on a whim. For years, that didn't happen, but in 2016, Something changed. Anderson, this night is turning out to be a real nail biter. All along, the Trump campaign has been saying that Florida's a must win for them. Absolutely. And I mean, it, they can't it, win without it. Donald Trump will carry the state of Florida. You know, I'm, I'm guessing that the people in Brooklyn, they're probably, they're, I can see their fingers That's probably. That's the Hillary Clinton uh, Yeah, fingers probably bleeding because there's no more nail to bite. Uh, there are, I wouldn't call anything encouraging for Hillary Clinton at the moment, to be honest with you, my friend. Wolf, the scene here is so different than it was a few hours ago when people were happy and relaxed. I have been looking around the room at people who are stone-faced. Some of them have been crying. This was a white lash against a changing country. It was a white lash against a black president. This is the people rising up saying it's time to listen to us. It's time to listen to us in Michigan and Wisconsin and work for the people. Hillary Clinton has called Donald Trump to concede the race. When Donald Trump was elected in November 2016, it was due in no small part to his rhetoric on immigration. He began his campaign for the presidency this way. The U.S. has become a dumping ground for everybody else's problems. <laughs> Thank you. It's true. And these are the best and the finest. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some 
I assume are good people. The watchword of his campaign became the wall. A wall between Mexico and the United States to stem the apparent tides of immigration would solve the economic plight and the racial anxiety of white Americans. Build that wall. 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 Trump made significant promises about immigration, including the now infamous promise to, quote, build a wall and make Mexico pay for it, to remove all undocumented immigrants, to cancel funding of sanctuary cities, to enact, quote, a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States, to limit legal immigration, to remove existing Syrian refugees, to end birthright citizenship, to terminate Barack Obama's executive orders on immigration, including DACA, and most importantly for our story, to triple ICE enforcement. After his election, Donald Trump made immigration a priority in his administration. Some of the first executive orders he signed were about immigration. Executive Order 13767, titled Border Security and Immigration Enforcement Improvements, was the first. This order allowed for the beginnings of the wall, with the construction of prototypes in the American Southwest and the rebuilding of a two-mile wall in Calexico. Most of the press at the time focused on the wall, but most of the executive order had to do with changes to immigration enforcement. Well, it has become dramatically more hostile to all forms of uh, immigration under this administration as a matter of atmospherics, as a matter of some regulations and some uh, decisional law, administrative decisional law. Hans Christian Lennartz. Congress has not changed the law at all. Uh, and although the tendency for Congress Anytime it has changed the law in the last decade and a half or more has been to make it more restrictive, mm. to make it harder for people to immigrate in almost any category or, and to remove avenues of relief that once existed for people in certain categories. But uh, what the Trump administration has done is it has uh, made regulations or withdrawn regulations which make burdens of proof more difficult. Uh, they had attempted to cancel deferred action for childhood arrivals and that is still a matter going in litigation that will eventually be decided by the Supreme Court. Uh, it of course imposed travel bans uh, that were over and over modified and remodified sometimes in response to court challenges. Uh, in addition to that, there is just an atmosphere that has, has changed within the, especially the enforcement arms of immigration. During earlier administrations, and uh, I, uh, the Obama administration before that, the Bush administration before that, the Clinton administration before that, uh, the previous Bush administration and Reagan, for a long time, the executive has uh, given to law enforcement agencies in the immigration field discretion to set priorities and to target enforcement actions against people 
who are particularly undesirable, you know, folks who have felony convictions, folks who might be terrorists and that kind of thing. Donald Trump shifted the prioritization of immigration enforcement in the United States by eschewing past emphases on those who had committed crimes. Instead of a focus on perceived threats, the Trump administration prioritized the deportation of all non-citizens. Executive Order 13767 put it this way, It is the policy of the executive branch to expedite determinations of apprehended individuals' claims of eligibility to remain in the United States and remove promptly those individuals whose legal claims to remain in the United States have been lawfully rejected. While on the face of it, nothing seems unusual about that language, it had a profound effect on immigration enforcement in the United States. It meant that anyone who had temporary status to avoid deportation was now on the list for deportation. Many immigrants had found their asylum claims denied, but were allowed to stay in the United States with yearly check-ins with ICE to make sure they were complying with the law. According to Executive Order 13767, that was no longer going to be standard practice, as it had been for many years under both Republican and Democratic administrations. Uh, with Mr. Sessions, while he was Attorney General and carrying through under his interim and, and whoever Mr. Trump may appoint as permanent Attorney General, and under Kristen Nielsen, who was the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, a policy of no exceptions, no discretion has come to be the rule of the administrative uh, end of law enforcement. So uh, in this area alone, of course, immigration, we have uh, no discretion. It's so unlike almost any other area of uh, uh, law enforcement, mm -hmm. uh, speed limits, <laughs> uh, just about anything. There are, there are little amnesties that come up. There are ways you can avoid paying interest and penalties if you underpaid your taxes. There are so many areas in which uh, discretion operates to make life more merciful uh, in other areas of law. But the Trump administration has decided, no, in immigration enforcement, we are going to simply maximize the uh, requirements of the law and allow no, no room uh, except what is written into the law and that we have to abide by for discretion, for uh, mercy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a major change. Uh, it has resulted in more people being deported on an annual basis by this administration than any other in the past. Now, I will say that the previous administration, Mr. Obama, mm -hmm. uh, he was also deporting more people than anybody in the past had. Uh, he was giving with one hand things like deferred action for childhood arrivals, but taking back with another hand uh, on the heavy enforcement of uh, removals. So. You, that was almost a schizophrenic kind of administration. This one is not schizophrenic. It's uh, just manic in mm. terms of enforcement. Mm. Another executive order, signed the same day as 13767, was primarily about sanctuary cities, which received most of the attention in the media. The directives signed today by President Trump include revoking federal funds
funds from so-called sanctuary cities. The president also took executive action restricting immigration from countries that harbor terrorists, and he wants to crack down on sanctuary cities. Massive protests in New York City and Washington, D.C. yesterday, part of demonstrations nationwide after President Trump signed two executive orders targeting immigration, the first to build that promised wall at the Mexican border, the next to pull money from so-called sanctuary cities who shield undocumented immigrants. What was buried in Executive Order 13768, however, was more detail about who was a priority for deportation. Tucked away behind the incendiary language about sanctuary cities was this. It is the policy of the executive branch to ensure that aliens ordered removed from the United States are promptly removed. Again, this jeopardized the fate of many immigrants who found themselves with orders of deportation, but living in the United States legally under various temporary statuses, like the order of supervision Jill Bikindu lived with for years. Suddenly, Immigrants who had lived, worked, paid taxes, and contributed to their communities had their lives as they knew them turned upside down. Only too few people saw it coming. I mean, I mean, you know, at some point, you know, I remember at some point, they, they told him that, no, you know, Jean's case is not a reality, it's not a priority. Right. You, know, you have to do just, you know, get the file ready and, uh, you know, it's going to work, you know. As I was going there, nothing was happening to me, you know. I, I cannot trust them. But uh, at the same time, I can tell you that at some point, you know, I started to, like, uh, not, not, you know, to be that confident. I was having, you know, like, they made I had some doubt sometime, you know. Right. Yeah, but, uh, you know. They made you think that maybe uh, it was going to be all right? Yeah, at the same time, the news, the news was going on about other people, you know, other people that was going, Congolese people, like Congolese, uh, you know, some, I, I know one, one, one of uh, Congolese uh, uh, guy was detained too, and uh, deported too. Yeah. And uh, I had that news before that happened to me. Right. You know? The last appointment that we'd gone to, I remember distinctly Officer Kelly telling us that deportation was not a thing we had to worry about, that removal was not a thing we had to worry about. Nothing changed in Jill's life immediately as a consequence of the presidential transition. Not even immediately after the executive orders were signed five days into the new administration. But alarm bells started going off when it came time to renew his order of supervision in the latter half of 2017. Jill received a letter notifying him that the order of supervision was not going to be renewed as usual. The first thing to do was talk to an immigration lawyer, Hans Christian Lenartz, who you heard earlier. This began the paper trail of denied applications that would last through the next several months. 
Of getting what? The state of removal. So uh, that, that that's what uh, the lawyer um, suggests suggested to do. Right. So we were working on the on the stay of removal application, and at the yeah, same time, the potential was there. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, thing we could do to uh, uh, like to avoid that is to ask for a stay of removal on the basis of uh, a reasonable reason, and uh, you know, I can say that, uh, and uh, the medical reason is one of the reasons. Right, you had multiple reasons, but that was one of them. It's one of the reasons that, yeah. Yeah, the first thing that we tried for was a stay of removal, which is an administrative decision on the part of immigration, usually lasting for a year or less at a time. Again, based often on any number of factors, most frequently in the past, these were mercy related factors, uh, the needs of dependent children or the health needs of the individual. Uh, but sometimes also a stay of removal may be based on some law enforcement need to keep the person here to testify against bad guys or other factors. And with a stay of removal, one does have essentially a guarantee of not being deported, notwithstanding the existence of an order of deportation for the length of time that ICE grants that stay of removal. Stays of removal create space to find alternate solutions. A stay of removal, for example, would have given everyone time to appeal and reconsider Jill's claim to asylum. The first time Jill returned to his ICE check-in in Charlotte after the order of supervision was revoked, he came with an application for a stay of removal. So one, one of the things that I don't think people realize, um, people writ large in America who are citizens, is that dealing with ICE and to a lesser extent USCIS, US Customs and Immigration Services, is that it is monstrously inconvenient. Wesley Spears Newsom. Like you think having to to go to the bank or to your doctor's office to do something that you should be able to do just over the internet or over your phone is annoying. Um, let me introduce you to Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, because they, they will request that you go to your regional office to settle these matters and check in in a way that is entirely superfluous. Um, to, to anything that they actually need. But Jill would always have to travel to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is three and a half hours away from here, um, one way. Um, so six, seven hour round trip. Usually what ICE would do is tell you you were coming for a specific kind of purpose. Um, prior to 2017, uh, Jill would only have to go once a year. Um, that that was the typical pattern. Is that one year they would check in with you, check in and make sure you're not violating any of the conditions of your order of supervision, um, make sure that you still resided in a place where they could keep track of you. This is this is how you you live as a documented immigrant. Um, that your documentation means the government always knows where you are and on a whim can make you come report to them and tell you tell them everything about you. 
So usually when we would go to Charlotte, it would be to go drive six and a half hours round trip, go through a security at the ICE building, go sit in a waiting room for an hour, maybe more, um, speak with his case manager for 10 minutes, maybe, and then drive back. Um, so, so you lose a whole day of work. Um, you, I mean, that, and that strikes me as pretty significant for um, the kinds of people who are having to go do these check-ins. ICE refused to accept the stay of removal application the first few times that Jill brought it with him to almost monthly check-ins in Charlotte. There was always some other hoop that he had to jump through, some T that hadn't been crossed, some I that hadn't been dotted. Eventually, he was told that he had to get the Congolese government to submit some documentation on his behalf before they could accept the application for a stay of removal. Eventually, ICE accepted it. Jill paid the application fee, and the waiting game began. Dealing with ICE is very uh, Orwellian, in a sense. So there, there are lots of euphemisms that ICE uses to describe things. Like they have field offices and people have A numbers that are alien numbers. And um, they have various statuses that have very technical names. And there's a lot of what goes on that's hidden behind a kind of bureaucratic language that is all their own, um, not something that everyone else uses. And when you go to an ICE office, the, the first thing that you'll notice, whether it's the USCIS office in Morrisville or the ICE office in Charlotte, is that there's so much um, security on the front end that it's very tightly filtered who gets to go in and who doesn't. Uh, I had to make, I had to explain every time and make the case why I needed to go in with Jill every time um, because Jill speaks English. So like I wasn't a translator, that kind of thing, um, but I was helping him in the process and they let me through every time. But once you go through there, you have to walk down this hallway to an elevator. Um, and when you get to the second floor, I was struck every time by how empty the building is it's very sterile there's nothing on the walls it's all shades of beige and tan not unlike a, a lot of hospitals and we would walk down to this small waiting room um, we'd pass the room every time where you see like swearing in ceremonies um, it was always empty every time i passed it and we would go sit in a waiting room, not unlike a doctor's office, except the counter that you would go up to is the, there's a barrier between you and the receptionist that I think is bulletproof glass. And there's very much the sense that when you're in there that you are treated as a threat. Um, so there's very much the sense of anonymity and um, edifice that you have to get past but when you get past it 
it's kind of remarkable how short the chain of command is at that point. Like you are you are dealing with very specific individuals. Like Jill's um, Jill's officer was Officer Kelly, and the guy in charge of the field office in Charlotte was David Cundy. Um, and these are individuals that have a wide degree of latitude and discretion in how they enforce the the laws that they're charged with. And it's just these people making these decisions. And the most remarkable part about that to me is how much those people have power and how much they're willing to lie. It turned out Ice had lied. While Jill was jumping through their hoops, Ice told him he wasn't in danger of detention and deportation. However, the whole time they were working with the Congolese government to facilitate his deportation. That work was completed behind the scenes in late 2017, and when Jill came for his biometrics check-in in January of 2018, Ice's work bore fruit. Yeah, I, I remember us going in and walking into the ICE office. We both suspected this was going to be like every other appointment because that's what we'd been promised was that he was not a priority and that there was discretion involved with who ICE was detaining and deporting and he wasn't a priority. But these were the procedures, these were the laws, these were the things, these were the rules you had to follow. But you're not a priority because we've got a lot of people that we need to go after who are um, actually threats to the country. Um, so we, we walked up the hallway and I, I remember waiting for a long time. You're sitting in this long skinny room with a bunch of other uh, people at any given time. Um, other immigration lawyers, other immigrants, um, lots of languages being spoken in the room, and there's the DHS emblem on the wall, and American flags everywhere. So we turned in everything we were supposed to turn in and waited. Because the way this worked is you'd walk up and you'd put your file on the counter. You wouldn't talk to a receptionist right away. Like you would just have to set your documents on the counter and eventually the receptionist would walk over and call you up when they got to your file. And when they got to his file and called him up, Officer Kelly came out, who we'd been talking to the whole time. And Officer Kelly said he needed to come to the back to do the biometrics, to do the fingerprints and go get the information. So Jill went around through the door by the receptionist's desk to the back with Officer Kelly, as he'd done before. I'd even been back there before. Um, I was not allowed to go back with him this time. They denied my request to do that. Uh, I'm going to admit that. I mean, I was sad that day. Yeah. And, and uh, it, took, it took us uh, a long time sitting there and waiting, waiting uh, for all the cases, you know, until uh, uh, the officer called me and uh, 
He asked me if I papers on my file. I said, okay, yeah. All my papers are there. And then at some point, I think the uh, his supervisor came ask me uh, my ID so that they can process my file. That's what he told us. Yeah. You know, and I get him the, the ID and he, he went there uh, and he went inside and maybe he made a copy or something like that. And, and then uh, the officer, one officer came get me came in, asked me uh, to go inside. And uh, she told me, okay, uh, you know what, what is going to happen. So I sat in the waiting room with uh, heavily bundled coats because it was January and, and Jill's bag uh, that he took with him. And I sat there for five minutes, and that wasn't unusual. I just, you can't use your phones and stuff while you're in there, so I was just kind of sitting there. Sat there for 10 minutes. And at that point, I just started saying um, recitations of the Lord's Prayer, um, the Jesus Prayer, other, any prayers that I could remember, um, both to have something to do and to try and calm my nerves and then about 15 minutes go past and nothing's happened okay uh, you know what what is gonna happen and that's when he decided to, to explain that uh, i'm gonna be there until uh, you know i was uh no it was crazy for me the surprise was that i mean yeah i was crushed <laughs> yeah um, yeah. I remember you saying when we talked to you on the phone that they trapped you. Yeah, and I called. Uh, I called. Uh, I called Wes. We told him that. Uh, so yeah, that's what. That's how it happened. Um, and then I get a call on my phone from Jill, and he's panicked. Um, he's saying that they tricked him, um, that they're kidnapping him, that they're taking him away, um, and that when they took him back, they, they whipped out handcuffs um, and put him in handcuffs. But they hadn't taken his phone yet, and he was able to tell me all this, and then the, the line cut out, uh, presumably because they, they realized he was calling. Um, so I, I stood in the, the waiting room with all these other immigrant families who can, can hear what's going on. Um, and eventually David Kendi comes out, who's in charge of the Charlotte office, and he tells me that they're detaining and he walks me through that they're uh, taking him to York County detention in South Carolina and that they're, they will probably move him to Georgia soon after. The first detention was uh, in uh, South South Carolina. South Carolina, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. South Carolina, maybe one, two days. Uh, and I start rattling off the legal things we've applied for. And I was like, but I, I kept asking why, why they were doing this. And he kept saying, it's just what we do. And made it sound very sanitized and very ordered. Um, and I asked if I could see him one more time, if I could go pray with him because I was his pastor before he left. And I was denied all of those requests. So I was, I, I just, I remember standing dumbfounded in the immigration office um, there. And I, I tried calling his lawyer, uh, Gilles' lawyer, about it. And I couldn't get through to him. And um, I, I was in a, a panic because um, I, I didn't know where he was. I didn't know what to do. And I remember just breaking down in the hallway of the ICE office. And I remember one of the one of the security guards who's like one of the, the contract employees there um, saw me just weeping in the in the hallway and came up and, and hugged me. He kept asking me what was wrong. Um, I was trying to explain to him that they took my friend. That they, they took him and they were going to deport him. Yeah, I mean, he, he obviously didn't know what to say. But I I went down the, the elevator and just, I, I remember sitting in the lobby, not knowing where to go, and I finally was able to get through to Jill's lawyer, Hans. And uh, Hans didn't understand why this was happening. I still remember how surprised Hans was yeah. at every turn in this case. The, the Hans is the Who's expert the immigration lawyer right. in our state and was stunned at the way ICE was behaving. Um, I remember I remember talking to him several times and I went out to the parking lot and I remember I called Lauren, our senior pastor, I'm not often speechless, um, but I didn't have a whole lot to say. <laughs> um, whenever that happened, yes, I remember it very vividly. We were sitting, or I was standing in your office. Um, I was actually in the middle of a funeral meeting, um, and you came and got me and pulled me out, which uh, you would have never done <laughs> um, had it not been an emergency. Um, and so I remember pacing in your office, um, and I remember Wes on the other line. I remember his voice. Um, I remember the shaking in his voice and I remember just being in total shock and disbelief. Um, and I remember just, you know, saying like, this can't be happening. You know, this can't be happening. You can't be serious. This didn't really happen. There's no way they just took him. Uh, they told us they wouldn't do this. Right. I mean, I think that was happening over and over again. They told us that they wouldn't do this. sitting in the conference room 
And I remember when Jill called um, for the first time from York Detention Center in South Carolina um, and the sadness and anger and fear that was in his voice, the distress, um, when he said, Pastor, Pastor, they trapped me. And I remember feeling so helpless in that moment, um, you know, to be addressed as pastor in that, um, and for him to cry out in that way, like it felt like a cry of lament. Um, and I, you know, it's just not, I feel helpless, I'm sure a lot, um, as a pastor, but I don't think I've ever felt quite helpless in that way. Baptist church leaders from around Wake County and beyond gather in prayer and a call to action today, asking elected officials to put a stop to Jill Bakindu's potential deportation. Which is fighting to save one of its members from deportation. Jill Bakindu was taken into immigration custody earlier this week. When Jill was detained, it sent his community into a flurry of public actions demanding his release. This launched both Jill and his community of faith on a journey that would serve as a reminder of how inhospitable the United States can be. Next time on Inhospitable. So I was arrested, and that's the problem. I could have been died because people were, were being killed. Why was Jill Bikindu seeking asylum, and why was he denied? Inhospitable is a podcast from Greenwood Forest Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. For more information about the podcast or to contact us, please visit inhospitableusa.org. You can follow Inhospitable on Twitter at inhospitableusa. Hospitable is produced and edited by Stephen Stacks, written by Wesley Spears Newsom, with music by Stephen Stacks.